Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, if you will, please. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Peter says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection unto your your own husbands. That gets something, doesn't it? I notice Linda didn't bring Andre tonight. She didn't want him to get in on this. She said, I learned him before when I taught that in Ephesians. Husbands, you know, wives being subjection to your husband. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, what this means is that the demeanor, the actions, the character, the way the wives live before them will be able to influence them for good and win them to the Lord. And it may take a long time. Some of you have heard me tell of the story of uh, Mr. Uh, Brother Anderson that his wife, Amelia, the one that painted our baptistry scene from a Holy Land picture, that she she went over there as well as took pictures. But anyway, uh, how that she lived before him for 50 years and he never had accepted the Lord. And she was a good Christian lady all the time and she tried to live the Christian life before him. And finally... Uh, we had the privilege of witnessing to him, leading him to the, when he was in the hospital in El Paso. And he accepted the Lord, and she was so thrilled about that. But had she given up along the way or become worldly or indifferent and not had been a Christian, you know, she probably won him to the Lord herself. But, you know, you ha- he had to be brought to the place that he would... Uh, believe on the Lord and confess Him openly as His personal Lord and Savior and really accept Him as an act of faith. But anyway, it was probably her whole life that had really won Him to the Lord. So it says that they may without the Word be won by the conversation of the wise. And it doesn't mean that the Word doesn't play a part. It means that they will uh, be the living Bible to them. They will really live it out and be the witness to, to uh, them that they need to be. While they behold your chaste conversation, your manner of life, it's talking about here, coupled with fear. Now the word fear here has to do with reverence, godly reverence for your, for your life as a, as a Christian a woman, a wife. Whose adorning, let it not be. Now there's two things. If you look at verse 3, it says, let it not be. And then verse 4 says, let it be. I want you to look at these two things. Let it not be that outward adorning. Now let's just skip the other for a moment and look at verse 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. This is the real important thing. And then that outward adorning is described as some did in those days of plaiting of the hair and wearing of gold or putting on of apparel. Now it's talking about to elaborate and to uh, really put forth, you know, they plaited gold strands in their hair even, little gold threads in those days. And uh, putting on of gold, the excess of jewelry. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not uh, a time to, to fix yourself up and to try to look as nice as you can. But don't let it be strictly the outward appearance of yourself that amounts to something. Some people, some preachers have taken this and say, no, the woman can't do this with her hair and she can't do that. It doesn't say can't do this and that and the other. It says let it not be that. And some people go to, to the extreme and say, 
I'll let it not be the outward appearance, and so they'll say, I'm not going to have anything to do with fixing myself up, and thus they're letting it be what they are trying to let it not be. You see what I mean? They're letting it be that solemn appearance of not doing anything to try to adorn themselves or make themselves presentable, and as a result, they're letting that, that part of it be what they're trying to avoid letting it be. And so it's not uh, condemning certain things that women do to try to make themselves more beautiful and are men either. And you know, the thing about it is we all have to, we need to look the best we can. But when we try to let the outside be the main thing instead of the person, that's what it's talking about. But let it be, what does it say? Let it be the hidden man of the heart or the hidden person of the heart here. Uh, In that which is not corruptible, it says, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Here's an ornament, but this ornament has to do with the hidden man of the heart. It has to do with our personality. It has to do with our Christian character. See, Let it be, and especially here it's talking to wives in particular, let it be. It's a good pattern for men to follow too, isn't it? Let it be our inward uh, being that, that shines forth and that really counts. The hidden man of heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Which in the sight of God of great price. Now, God counts more. You know, the Bible says that God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. And so, let us let our lives, let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we're to let Christ live in us. We're not to make him live in us, but to let him live in us. Sometimes we try to force the issue and say, I want you to know that I'm a Christian. And we try to force how Christ-like we really are. And probably we're not that much. So what we need to do is, is live for God, and God will let that shine through. We don't have to try to put on to, to, to be more holy than someone, or to be more pious, or to be more godly. Let's just be it, and then it'll show just be it. Uh, the main thing for you and I to do is to let God's uh, uh, Holy Spirit guide us, live according to the Word of God, try to try to put on the things that the Word of God has taught us, uh, love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, kindness and goodness, and then we'll begin to form some of those essential characteristics that will identify us as as loving, Christian, godly people. And that's where we need to come from, from the inside out. It's admonition for all of us, because all of us need this, don't we? When you get around some fellow that, that lets you know just how holy and good he is, well, I want to get as far away from that guy as I can get, because he's already made a, made a fool of me. <laughs> I'm not that good, see, and he, he, he's so pious and he's so righteous and so holy that I just feel... I'm uncomfortable in his presence. I want to get down to some good Christian people that are honest and sincere and love each other and try to live right without putting on airs, you know, without letting everybody know that they're so good. And sometimes we get in crowds of people that that way. Have you ever gone preachers to to restaurants where some preacher would get up and, you know, you'd have grace over your food and He'd pray for everybody in the whole restaurant, and they could hear him all over the place. And you think, my, it makes you want to crawl in under the table, doesn't it? It's kind of embarrassing to me. 
Well, he can pray for all those folks, but a lot of them don't want to hear him, see. Maybe he better just be quiet. And, and if he sits there and acts like a Christian and, and, and thanks God for his own food and for the fellowship that he has there with the people that's, that's with him, fine and dandy, that's good. They may see that and they may take, it may be an example to them and that may have an impression. But he, if he gets up there and tries to act like he's the only one that's holy because he's praying and he's asking the blessing over the food and puts them all down and they're over there and they say, well, I forgot. Maybe they intended to. Maybe they just not in the habit of it. Well, they, you know, well, there's all kinds of feeling goes forth from that kind of a thing. So let's try to be what God would have us to be without putting on airs about it. In verse uh, 5 it says, For after this manner in old time the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves. They adorned themselves from the inside out, is what he's saying. Being in subjection unto their own husbands. It says, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now look, your daughters of Abraham as we're uh, your daughters of Sarah as we're sons of Abraham. See, uh, we're, uh, we're uh, by faith the children of Abraham, who was the man of faith. Abraham, the father of our faith, as the Bible puts it. And you daughters, or you wives, you become the daughters of Sarah in a sense. In this respect, that you follow her, her uh, mannerism and her character and her way, way of doing and even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So this is due reverence to your husband. It's what it's talking about. You know, someone says, some of uh, the ladies nowadays, they don't want to show any reverence or respect for their husbands. But the more respect you show for him, the better relationship you're going to have. Because he, God has put him in a place of, of authority and responsibility. And, and he may not take that place. And you may have to help him with that as, as ladies. You, you wives may have to help him with that place. And the more you support them, the more that they will accept that role and do what they're supposed to do. Maybe they're a little slack in being the husband that they need to be. But you're not going to get anywhere by trying to make them be that. You're going to get somewhere by trying to show them that they need that, uh, that, that respect and then they'll take that responsibility. But that's the reason a lot of husbands don't want to be a husband and don't want to be a father and don't want to take the lead and don't want to, to be uh, what they should be in their home is because uh, there's too, too many others trying to worship that place of authority. And so when the wives are obedient unto their own husbands as unto the Lord, and it says, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. So your example means a great deal. Now verse 7, your husbands. Likewise, we've been talking about the wives. Now we get to the husbands. Likewise, ye husbands, uh, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You see that? They're the weaker vessel by uh, stature or by the physical element of it. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to go up and get some strong lady wrestler that's trained to do that. But I'm talking about ordinarily, <laughs> ordinarily, I'm not going to try to fight one of those, but uh, what I'm talking about is that they are the weaker vessel in the general sense of the word, uh, uh, a lady's build and a lady's... Uh, uh, 
makeup, everything about her, it constitutes the fact that she is a weaker vessel. But on the other hand, uh, we don't want to. Uh, we want to recognize that we're to be encouraging to those wives. Husbands are to dwell with them according to knowledge and give honor to them as a weaker vessel and as being together, heirs together of the grace of life. God has blessed you together and, and live together in harmony and love that your prayers be not hindered. It has something to do, this harmony in your lives has something to do with God answering your prayers, doesn't it? If there's opposition and frustration and, and uh, crosswords, then then, uh, of course, there's a hindrance to prayer. That's a hindrance to prayer, as well as many other things. And it says, finally, be ye all of one mind. And this is coming now to all, all of the Christians, you know, husbands and wives, all of us who are children of God. Finally, be ye all believers in general. In other words, it's moving from the relationship of wives and husbands and husbands to wives down to Christians in general as to how we're all to react. So finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. This is as Christian, as brothers, as a church family. It says, uh, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, to the brethren. If you have a marginal reference, it says loving to the brethren. That means showing love and respect and honor to the brethren, to the family of God, to the church of God, to the brethren. Uh, Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. It says, Be pitiful, be courteous, be courteous. You know, a lot of times I think that we as Christians lose some of these essentials, don't we? Be pitiful. In other words, merciful and sympathetic, kind to one another, and be courteous. These things haven't gone out the window. These things should be still uh, uh, detected as a characteristic of you and I as Christian people. It says, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. We're to render blessings because we're called unto a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Now that's a hard thing for us to do, isn't it? Is to re refrain our tongue from evil. We have to be constantly on the alert that we will speak no evil. Like the little monkey, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil. That's the way we should be. We just ought to put on these things, and it, it will be for our good. For he that will love life, let him see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil. That means to shun it and do good. In other words, put your back against one thing and avoid it and turn away from it. Uh, completely ignore it, completely... Uh, Turn away from it and then do good. Turn to this, to doing good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. To desire to have peace. You know, I never could uh, figure how that people could get along with controversy. They're always wanting a conflict of some kind going on. And I'm always trying to get as far away from that. 
I just hate to bring up anything that I'm afraid will cause any conflict. Because I, I just hate it. I don't like to have uh, someone arguing with me about something that uh, usually it's immaterial anyway. But uh, sometimes if it's of a serious nature, you, you just hate to get in the middle of a conflict. And you know, I think one thing, and I love this church because of it, that it seems, I don't know, it seems a pretty easy thing. I hope it stays that way for us to be in harmony in one accord in one mind and one heart and you know the reason I think is because all of you want to be that way if you find someone that didn't want to be that way it caused trouble and you know this one person the Bible says only now listen only only by pride cometh contention if you find contention in any church anywhere the Bible says it doesn't come any other way the word says only. Someone says, well, you've got this problem in the church that's caused contention. No, you know what you got in the church? Pride. <laughs> that's what's caused it. You don't have to say, well, I don't know what's causing it. You say, I know what's causing it because the Bible says only by pride. It doesn't say it comes any other way. So let's stamp that down as a final rule and say that's the only way it's going to come. And when there's contention in the church, say somebody's proud. Where's it coming from? What's this little clique or group or person? Or who is it that's, that's filled with pride and wanting to be lifted up with pride? Well, that's where the contention's coming from. You know, I heard one of our professors one time say that a good way in a church to, to uh, see if people really want to serve God is every once in a while if you have deacons and, uh, you know, uh, teachers and various ones and song leaders and pianists and whatever you have working in the church, says just demote them once in a while. Just one notch. And if they can take that, then put them back up there because they deserve it. You know, if they can take being demoted and going down, no one wants to go backward, do we? But if we're all willing to serve God, we'll fill the place that God lays upon our heart and that we're capable of filling. And how many times have you seen it in a church where the where the, the meetings would come together and they'd have, appoint new teachers and some boy the other ones some of them would be sour and some of them would be mad and when one deacon is uh, preferred to be the usher in place of someone else or he has a, a prominent position in place that he used to have and it causes confusion you know why? there's some pride there somewhere or we could accept it and I'm not saying that we all that any of us want to go backwards we don't want to do that but if we're willing to serve in the least places, God will give you a greater place. And I found out in the public work as well. You go out, I've hired out as a laborer. I remember one time I hired out as a helper building a motel in, uh, in Wichita Falls, Texas. And, and I was just a little old peon helper there just going about doing what I was supposed to do. First thing you know, I ended up finishing the whole job, hanging all the doors, doing all the trim work, and I was the only man left on the job. And what happened to the rest of them, I don't know. But they got to where they thought they knew it all, and the boss fired every one of them. Let me finish the whole job. And he, he came in one day, and a, a door hanger came up there, and he, he was hanging a door. And he got the lock 32 inches from the floor instead of three feet, you know. And that was wrong. And that, The doors were side by side in this motel, these units. And then the next one he got is big, nice oak doors, and he's, he drilled his drill in the in the front of the door and split it right down the middle and he picked up his tools before noon and left and so the boss he said he came by and says where's that guy I hired to hang doors 
I said, well, he's gone. And I said, his tools are gone. <laughs> well, we knew he wouldn't be back. So He says, can you hang doors? He didn't ask me if I had hung doors before. He says, can you hang doors? And I said, yes. I knew I could. He didn't say, have you? He says, can you? And I did. And so I went. I got busy. I knew what to do, and I just got busy doing it. Anyway, uh, the Lord will raise you up as you go, and if you'll just fill the place you're supposed to, He'll give you promotions in due time. The Bible says, Promotion cometh not from the east nor the west, but promotion cometh from the Lord. And so God has a way of working. He, he brought old Joseph out of, out of that prison, didn't He? Remember they cast Joseph in the prison and God was with him and he was a doer of all things that were done in the prison. He was given charge over everything and finally he was brought up out of prison and given the place and he was the ruler in the land and he was the one that preserved the food for Israel and all the hungry nations at that particular time when there was a famine uh, in the land. Remember? Okay, let's go on with this now. It says in verse um, 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. You see? The eyes of the Lord. God sees. You know, God is, is shown to us in the Scriptures having eyes and ears. That he hears. His ears are open to their prayers. We know God is a spirit, but the Bible pictures God to us so that we can see him uh, on a human level. He's not on a human level. But he's presented to us on the human level. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is almighty. And he, he doesn't have a body like you and I have, but he's spoken of as having eyes and ears so that we can relate to it, and he'll, you, we'll know that God hears us. That spirit, which we see as a, as a form like we have, though he's not, has ears and he has eyes. So he sees all that's going on and he hears all that's going on and his ears are open to our prayers and his eyes are upon the righteous. Okay? But the face of the Lord, that means he's turning his face uh, against. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. In other words, he's not going to put up with the evil. Now then, verse 13, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Sometimes people say, Well, I... I try to do good, and I, I'm harmed on every hand. Well, there's an explanation for that, too. Look at this. But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. See that? You see, it says, if you be followers of that which is good, who's going to harm you? But it says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. We're told how to react if we do suffer for doing good. Then it says in verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God? God, sanctify means to be to set apart. Now God is already sanctified himself, but we need to put him in our hearts, to give him full place in our hearts, set him apart in our hearts. Sancti give room for God to be in your hearts and place Him there by faith. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer. That means a defense to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, take your stand for the Lord and say, I'm saved. Well, you're able to tell a person you're saved by grace. When a guy comes along and he says, well, 
How do you know you're saved? Well, the Word of God tells me if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll be saved. You say, well, what about your life, your works and all that? You've got to do this, you've got to do good works, and you've got to follow this rule and that rule and that regulation in order to be saved according to their knowledge, you know, their prejudiced ideas, preconceived ideas. You say, well, no, the Bible tells me that I'm saved through the blood of Christ, that I'm saved by grace, through faith. I'm not saved by all these things you're talking about. I'm saved because Jesus died on the cross for me and I believed on Him and trusted Him as my Lord and Savior. To give a defense, give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason, the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that has something to do with it too. In other words, not in a smart aleck, arrogant way. In meekness and in fear. With reverence. Say, I... Tell about your salvation by faith in Christ and based upon the Word of God, but do it in such a way that you're not uh, overbearing to people with meekness and in fear. And fear. Then it says, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evil doers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. In other words, we need to live Christian lives so that when someone comes along and accuses us, we will not be guilty of that which we're accused of. Sometimes we're guilty of it and we just feel awful, don't we, if we're guilty of it. But here, if we can live so that when they accuse, you can truthfully say and feel in your heart and conscience that that accusation is false, then you can go about with your head up and you can go about as you would as a Christian, you know. And you, you won't have to let it bother you very much. I've had a lot of folks say things about me that I didn't think was true. And you know, I still don't believe some of it's true. But, but they've said them nevertheless. And maybe they had, uh, someone had told them something. And they start uh, spreading tales about it. And you know, people do that too. People are falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. And if you get enough people believing a lie, you'll get the whole country are caught up in it uh, sooner or later, you know. And just like you, you take some of these fellows in uh, in uh, places of our senators or or uh, people up in places of authority and responsibility, that there can be an accusation, an allegation against them, and sometimes that'll ruin their career, even though they prove in a court of law that it was not true. Now some of them are guilty too. Don't misunderstand me. But if a man is accused in that place of responsibility sometimes he's done in just by the accusation it's already over just well forget it he doesn't stand a chance because half of the world will believe it in spite of it even if he's clear and so let's be careful about who we accuse of anything in verse uh, 17 for it is better if the will of God be so do we want what is better we do don't we if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well doing than for evil doing isn't it much better for you as a Christian to suffer for well-doing than it would to be to suffer for evil-doing? Certainly it would be. And so uh, we can see that sometimes it is the will of God that we suffer for well-doing. It's hard for us to reconcile that and say, well, now, look, if I'm doing well, why do I have to suffer? But if it, be, it says it's better if the will of God be so. Verse 18, Christ is the example. Look. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. That's all of our sins. The just, he was the just, for the unjust. He suffered for well-doing, 
but He suffered for our sins as well. Uh, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now then, you see how easily, before we take up the next part of the, the verses as we go along, and this will help you to understand the next part, the next few verses ahead of us, if you keep this rule in mind, that what we've been talking about. Have you seen how easily the flow from one verse to the other has followed? It hasn't been complicated, has it? And immediately when we pick up the next verse, someone throws a big old complicated block in the way and says, Now look, we're on an altogether different thing. But if you will just let the natural flow of the Scripture that we're talking about now begin to unfold itself, it will be just as simple as all this that we've talked. But if you try to complicate it, it's going to be complicated. You see, so far, Peter's just been teaching along, giving us things, and what from one thought to the other, and, and they've all been following one another, and it's just a simple unfolding of the Scripture, right? Keep that in mind as we approach this 18th verse again. Look at it. For Christ... Also, let's read it and, and get the flow of the Scripture. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now notice, the Holy Spirit raised him, quickened him. He was put to death on the cross, wasn't he? But he was raised by the Spirit. And notice, when it says, by the Spirit, it's not the end of the sentence. So that indicates that the flow of this is going to continue right on in the next verse. By, the, by which also, by which spirit also, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now someone begins to get real complicated here and say, Jesus went into a certain compartment and he preached to the spirits that were there and gave them a second chance uh, to dead uh, spirits, the dead men that had their spirits in prison in the prison house of Hades. It's not what it's talking about at all. You see, you begin to throw in a complication, let it unfold itself. Look, it says in the last part of verse 18, put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which, by what? The Holy Spirit. By which Spirit? See? See how it ties into the Holy Spirit? By which Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now then look, that's not the end of the verse either, is it? See, that's not the end of the sentence. It's the end of the verse, but not the end of the sentence. See, you have the, the uh, colon after spirit and the semicolon after prison, right? So it's still a continuation of the thought of his preaching to the, to the spirits in prison. Now look, it's still him preaching to them by the Holy Spirit, but how did he do that? He did it through Noah. Because look at the next verse. Which sometimes were disobedient, these these. Wicked people were disobedient in the days of Noah. Uh, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was uh, preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now let's take those three verses. See, that's the end of the sentence. You see, you have to put all three of these verses together to understand what it's talking about. If you try to interpret any one of them separately from the context, you're going to get in trouble. Now I want you to follow me. What are we saying then? We're saying that in the days of Noah, 
that Christ by the Holy Spirit through Noah preached to the wicked people of that day and only eight of them were saved. <laughs> and that was Noah and his wife and, and three sons and the daughters-in-law, right? And their wives. And that's what it's saying, that, that Christ through Noah by the power of the Holy Spirit preached to those wicked people in, the, in that particular day and only eight of them were saved. And they were in prison the spirits in prison, they were in the prison house of sin. They were in sin. They were uh, away from God. They were wicked people. And Noah preached to them for 120 years, and no one believed him, but eight souls were saved. That wicked generation of people did not believe. Now, isn't it much more simple to let the flow? Look at verse uh, 18 again. When you come to the end of verse 18, but quickened by the Spirit by which also... You get the connection? By which Spirit? The Holy Spirit. This same Spirit that quickened Christ was also uh, in Noah preaching to these wicked ones in Noah's day. Follow? Now there's an interpretation, I'll be as far as I can about, but there's an interpretation drifting around that when Christ died, he went into Hades and he preached unto the lost souls that were... Uh, lost in Noah's day and all uh, kept in, in uh, Hades and he went there and gave them a second chance to be saved but I don't believe that's what it's talking about I believe it's just exactly like I first gave it to you that it's talking about Christ you know Jesus has always been and he says before Abraham was I am he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and so Christ has always been, and the whole, he sent his Spirit upon Noah to preach to a wicked generation in that particular day. We'll get into the figure of baptism here in a moment. Because this is a, this is a very complicated passage of Scripture if you want to make it complicated, but it's also very simple if you want to look at it in, a, in the way that the Scripture is already... See, we haven't, when we've come down to this, we've let the Scripture just flow from one verse to another. And then when we get down here, someone wants to kick a big rock in the road and say, Now look, you can't understand this because this is talking about something real complicated. Talking about giving people that are dead a second chance after Jesus died on the cross. And there's a lot of people that hold that view. There's a lot of people. But I don't think that's what it means. Now you look at it. When we get to verse uh, 21, it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the word save really uh, gets to a lot of people. This is where a lot of folks get baptismal regeneration, that baptism actually saves you. If it does save you at all here even, it saves you only in a figure. In other words, it's a figure of your salvation, which it really is. It's a picture of it. But let's get the real meaning of this verse. If you'll notice in verse 21, a parenthesis begins, doesn't it? When it says, after save us. Let's read it and leave the parenthesis by itself and then we'll come back and get the parenthesis. You see the parenthesis in your scripture? Okay, let's read it. The light figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, drop down, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're saved because 
Christ rose again from the dead, and this is a figure, baptism is a figure of his death, burial, and resurrection, right? And so it's a figure of our salvation, but we're saved by the resurrection of Christ. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, really, we're saved. When we speak of the resurrection, we already accept the fact that there has to be the death and burial, or there couldn't be a resurrection, right? Now then, if you turn back to the first chapter, just flip a page, two pages back to the first chapter, and verse 3 says, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or living hope. Now why? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has what? Begotten us again. We're born again to a living hope. It doesn't mention baptism there, does it? Right? It doesn't mention baptism. It says we're born again or begotten again. Begotten means to be born. Right? Unto a living hope. By what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says over here in the third chapter that we're studying, in verse uh, 21, that the figure... The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying that baptism is a picture of that salvation that we have by Christ's resurrection. And that's proven and guaranteed by his resurrection. Now then, it also says in the parenthesis, you have it, 321, that it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. And it's not talking about someone not taking a bath for a week. It's talking about the filth of the flesh. It's not the putting away of the carnal nature, that old sinful nature. That's what it's talking about. Baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, of this old carnal nature, but it's the answer. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. So that the person that's saved and begotten again into a living hope and has salvation in Jesus Christ he, he knows that he's to be baptized, and when he's baptized, he's at peace with God because he's given the answer of a good conscience toward God. And he's not, it's not only that. It's not only the answer of a good conscience toward God because it's many other things that are involved. If you turn back to Romans chapter 6, it says, uh, you have Romans 6, quickly. Verse 3. Well, let's read all of it, beginning with verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin, if we're dead to something, we're separated from it. In some way or another, we're dead to sin. We're separated from sin. Uh, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, this is water baptism. You know where people get off on the deep end? They make everything say spirit baptism, half the, or about half the scriptures that say baptized, make it a spirit baptism. This is water baptism. What kind of baptism were we told to carry out as, as a church? Jesus says, Go ye therefore into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, and baptize them. We can't baptize them with the Holy Spirit. It's never said that any man baptized with the Holy Spirit but the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scripture doesn't say that any man can do that. So it says, Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're to do it in that name and with that authority. And it's water baptism. Now, I know a lot of good commentators, even in some fundamental groups of 
Some of these guys, they get a big thing going, you know, a big university going, and they get their commentators, and they write their own things, and, boy, they come out with some of the most outlandish, and they're supposed to be Bible Baptist preachers. And they'll start uh, stemming off onto a kind of a universal, indifferent uh, theory uh, that has to do with, and make this spirit baptism. It doesn't say spirit baptism here, does it? It says it's a figure on down. Certainly, if you're baptized with a spirit, you're not baptized in a figure. It's an actual thing. So when when we look at this, look, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, we know baptized means immersion, right? We were not literally immersed into Christ's death, or we'd have to be immersed uh, into his death and buried with him in the tomb. We were only figuratively or in a symbol recognized as in the death of Christ. We were born 1,900 years later. We could not possibly be literally, actually baptized into his death. If baptized means to be immersed, we could not. We had to be baptized into his death only in a symbolic way or a figurative way, right? Because we lived 1,900 years later. And so we look back to Christ's death and say we reckon ourselves to, uh, we're, we confess that we're sinners and that our sins were on Christ and that, that he uh, died for our sins. And so he was buried and he rose again the third day and so we're dead to sin too. He died for our sins and we're dead to sin. Now look at this. Therefore, verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. We are. He was, but we are. That like as, look at that word like as. Now that will help you to understand it. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been planted or buried together in the likeness of his death. You see, baptism is a likeness. Baptism is a figure. Baptism is a symbol. You cannot possibly make it a literal, actual being immersed with Christ in his death. It has to be symbolical. And it has to mean that once you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you follow him in baptism, you're doing in symbol and in picture what he uh, did for you. He died for your sins. And you're saying, I'm dead to my sins because I've received Christ. And this is a picture of my new life. I'm, I have a new life. I'm resurrected with Christ. That's what you're saying when you go down in the waters of baptism. You're declaring that that's... And you're declaring that this is not only what you've done looking back to Christ's death, but you're also in symbolical language declaring that you... Now listen carefully. That you have already passed from death into life. And this baptism is only a symbol of what has really already taken place in your heart and life. Okay? Let's get back to 1 Peter because we just have about time to to uh, end it up. So when you come to verse 21, what does it say? It says, Baptism is a picture of your salvation by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a figure. It's a figure of your salvation. And it doesn't put away the carnal nature, the princes. Look, it doesn't get rid of your old carnal nature when you're baptized. It doesn't, it doesn't make you uh, a new creature. And it certainly doesn't eradicate the old nature. Baptism is a picture of that. But God gives you a divine nature when you're born again to a living hope. 
when you're born again in the family and kingdom of God by faith in Christ, God gives you a divine nature, and it's all on the basis of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You see, there's a lot of things pointed out there. If you go back to the figure of Noah, was it the water, was it him being buried in the water that saved him, or was it Noah in the ark that saved him? The ones in the water drowned, didn't they? Right? But the ark is a picture of Christ. Now then, how does that ark, and since it pictures Christ, how does it also picture baptism? Because the water came down from above, and it was, it was beneath them, and it was coming down on all sides of them. And though they were not actually immersed in the depths of the water, they were immersed in water. It was all around them. But their real safety was not in the water because that was bringing destruction. But their real safety was in the ark. And their salvation was in the ark. And so, not only is Noah a picture of the salvation in Christ in the ark, but Noah is a picture, the figure that was taking place when he was saved in that ark is also a figure of the baptism. And that baptism represents uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All around them was dead. And they were safe in the ark. And then finally, what, did, what happened when the water, when the water uh, went, went away? When the water decreased and when it, when it uh, assuaged, I think is the Bible term. Of it. What happened? They were on a new, they were like on a new earth, right? 